Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Garolitis, the controversial Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code SHAP30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. The Novak Djokovic story has taken over the world's news, and I could not think of a better guest to discuss this with. He was born and raised in New South Wales, Australia, played college tennis in the States, spent 20 years as a coach, and is credited as being the first to utilize Moneyball-style analytics and metrics to affect match results. He was a member of Team Djokovic from 2017 until the end of 2019. He is now the coach of Aussie Davis Cupper and world number 61, Alexi Popperin. Craig O'Shaughnessy is today's guest. Hang on, so you're in Sydney? Yes, yeah, uh, for the lead-up tournament. And then when he's done, we'll go to Melbourne. You're you're with Popperin? Yeah. And when does he play? He's got doubles this morning at 11. Popperin has doubles this morning at 11. And then once you guys are finished in Sydney, you will head to Melbourne. Exactly. Where you will play the Australian Open. Exactly. Gentlemen, you here is the official and original Moneyball man of, of tennis. He distinguished himself in and around 2015, being really the first cat on the street to bring metrics and strategy into the professional game. And he is part of the all-name Hall of Fame. One of the top three Craigs in the world right now being spoken about, in my opinion, uh, and that's Craig O'Shaughnessy. There we go. You're, you're Aussie. Yeah, born and raised in Albury, Australia. Little country town, 25 grass courts, fun times. Yeah, I heard that you grew up at the club where Margaret Court grew up. Yep, yep, where she grew up playing tennis as well, same club. My man, as you know, we do a five-set format. The first set is the the off-the-court report. Listen, let's just get right into it. As a former member of the Djokovic team, Mm -hmm. what have your perceptions been of the situation that's rocking not just the nation but the world? Yeah, amazingly unfortunate. I mean, it's it's just it, it's hard to put into words. The, the, there's so many layers to this, so many angles, so many <clears throat> things in play. And you know, we, we can talk about it for another hour this morning, or, or whatever we're going to do. But but there's a really good chance that this afternoon he's deported out of the country. That's the word on the street. Um, the word people are hearing on the street is that Scott Morrison is going to shut him down today, that this thing is not going to end well. Is, is that exactly, right? Exactly. They've spent four days reviewing everything. Um, Novak's legal team has submitted a lot of documents that has kind of slowed the process down. Alex Hawke is the immigration minister. And, um, you know, there's, there's uh, journalists that are very, um, you know, that's what they do. They cover the government. They cover the political scene here, and they are reporting this morning that they hear um, from the government that he will be deported today. So 
man, you know, it's, uh, it's a very sad state of affairs, especially with him coming out and saying that he went to a, um, a quip photo shoot knowing he was COVID positive, you know, and, and talking to those people and, and, and having his mask off um, for part of it and not telling them. You know, that's, that, that, that comes with a three-year jail term in Serbia. Um, that's that, you know, there's, there's a lot of things you may have an opinion on. You may be a Novak fan and let a lot of this wash, you know, away because it's Novak, but you know, that right there cannot happen. That's, that, that's a major offense. You were inside of this team, knowing what, you know, seeing what you've seen. Are you that surprised? Um, you know, the, the best player in the world, they do get preferential treatment. You know, I go back. I go back a year ago and something that didn't sit right with me was when Craig Tiley talked about um, the players, a small group of players going to Adelaide um, to do the the quarantine, the hard quarantine, instead of being in Melbourne. And Novak was one of them. And Craig came out and said, um, you know, if you are the best player in the world, you know, you are going to get preferential treatment. And I've spent many years coaching players, you know, I'm working with Alexi Popperin here, he's 62 in the world. Um, I've coached Rajiv Ram when he was lower ranked, Amir Delic when he's lower ranked, Kevin Anderson when he's lower ranked, Marcel Ilhan, you know, a, a bunch of players that are in that, you know, 50 to 150 range. And I, I constantly saw at these events that it's not an even playing field for them, you know, that they don't get the, the, the same perks that the top players do. And that, that has always bothered me. Is like once you, are, once you are in the event, every single player must be treated equally in that event. And there are so many instances that they're not. And so I, I don't like um, that the top players getting, getting incredibly preferential treatment. And it, it matters a lot to the wins and losses in these events. Everyone's, everyone should be treated equally. But are you surprised that Team Djokovic has fallen down this hole of of disaster? Right? <laughs> yeah, I am. Yes, I am surprised you because you, you know, are. You've got you know you you've got a, a legal team. You've got a, an agent. You've got a, an, another person who looks after social. You've got a group of people that are employed to make this you know multi million dollar machine run correctly. Novak is an insanely good tennis player. Um, you know, the money that he earns on the court and off the court, the sponsorships that come around him that he gets involved with, the opportunities he gets um, to have because of his status as the number one player in the world. And he's earned all that. He's earned all that. It, it's, it's, it just seems to be in, in this instance, one bad mistake following another one, following an even worse decision and um it, it is very surprising to me are you talking about a player that put a tour on in the middle of the covid then they went you know bottles and models they all got covid he's has this pattern of driving this ship that seems to <laughs> doesn't seem it seems rudderless at times even when he even when he decked the line judge it's like he almost operates like he doesn't think he can screw up yeah yeah good point i mean the you know on the, on the surface you know if you just kind of 
have some empathy with him and go into his head. And he's like, okay, there's, there's this lockdown on global lockdown. There's no tennis. Let me put a tour on, um, you know, Moritoglu did a, a, a similar thing at his academy, but it was confined. It was all in one, one place. So on the surface, the, these ideas look okay. But, you know, when you get to the nuts and bolts and say, like, hang on, you know, let, let's really think this through. You know, you look back and hindsight says this, you just shouldn't do that. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of mistakes that have happened here in um, Novak trying to get to Australia. Do you know his parents? Do you know the, the brother? I've never met them. Or he already torpedoed them before you were you became part <laughs> right he had shut them down before well, he, before you were part of the team well i was i came in after boris becker right um you know boris did a, a, i think a magnificent job you know they they won a lot of grandsons i think they won six together um my period with novak uh, we won four together it was also a very difficult period where he you know he, he dropped to 22 in the world he he was out on the tour um, for a long time one more question here. What are the players saying? What are the officials saying? What are you, all your people saying? What's everyone saying about this? Well, when it, when it broke, you know, it was about the same time I came up here to Sydney. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think Rafa really did a good job, um, you know, when he was asked about it. There was, there was part of his conversation was, um, you know, we, we feel for Novak. We hope he's doing okay. We understand he's in a detention center. You know, it's, it, it's a difficult time. But at the same time, Rafa said, you know, if he wanted to be in Melbourne, he would have been. He would have got vaccinated. He, you know, there's, there's, there is a problem-free route to play in at the Australian Open in 2022, and he chose not to do that. And, and that's the feeling of the, of the player group. That's the feeling. And, again, that speaks to what you said earlier. That's big-time preferential treatment. Yeah. Because everyone else is trying to take care of business here. Yeah. We, we've all got vaccinated. We've all got vaccinated. It's a global pandemic. We trust the scientists. We trust the science. The, the results are irrefutable that if you get um, the vaccines, you are, you're better off. I mean, the, the best analogy, I think the only one that we should be using is the seatbelt analogy. If you're in a car crash, you want to have a seatbelt on. It mitigates the damage. It doesn't stop you being in a car crash. But boy, it helps you. And that's what a vaccine is. Right. I, I think that's the thought is that the vaccines and the booster, they give you a, a toolkit to not end up on a ventilator. Yeah, bingo. Let's move into the second set. This is the On The Court Report. All, you know, Joker Gate aside, what's been the general mood in Sydney? How has the tournament been? Uh, good. Tournament's been good. It, you know, it's... It's running smoothly. We've had some rain. We're supposed to play last night, but and there's more rain this morning. So that's always difficult when you're like, I, I want to get this event done. I want to get to Melbourne. Um, luckily for us, we were in Melbourne first. We know the conditions there. We we felt the court speed there, um, <clears throat> and and we'll go back to Melbourne once we're done here. But um, you know they're doing a, a really good job up here in, in Sydney. That Melbourne one was a solid event. You know. There's, there's, there's no problems. Have the conditions for the players been better than they were yeah. a year ago? I think so. Has there been some grumblings from the players that it's still uh, not optimal? No, I think, um, you know, they've added the new court. They've added Kia court. It's a sunken court. 
Um, they're, they're always adding something. You know, Tennis Australia has been the global leader in, in constantly improving the event, uh, more, more so than the other events. Wimbledon sits on its own. You know, it's the home of tennis. It's grass. It's, it's immaculate. Um, but it's, con, you know, it's constricted by, by space. And, and the Australian Open is, is really always done a great job. And, and this year, you know, I landed on site. And once again, you know, there's new, there's improvements. There's a whole new media centre. Um, it's incredible in there. Now you've got a brand new number one court. I mean, it's um, that that in that regard, the Australian Open is uh, is definitely the world leader in in the tennis field and, and maybe even in just in in the sporting precinct. Um, you know, in, in any sporting precinct in the world, is doing an amazing job. My question to you is: Are the players like? Are the players happy? There was no quarantine. Are they able to go get food? So so the way it worked is, um, you know, for me for example, I had to take a PCR test within 72 hours to leave my home in Austin, Texas to come to Australia. I had to take a PCR test when I landed. I had to take a rapid test after six days. I had to take a rapid test when I arrived in Sydney. I have to take another rapid test when I arrive in Melbourne. So, um, you know, we're not getting tested every day. We're not. But um, there has been ample tests that I've had to take in order to um to play but you know COVID is omicron is everywhere out here as as it is you know all over the world but you know there's there's a lot of people in the support teams and players and families and girlfriends and and all of that that have caught COVID out here no no doubt about it what are they saying about curios you know nick's nick you know nick pops up especially around this time you know the australian public He's very polarizing. A lot of people love him. A lot of people say just be quiet. Um, you know, he caught COVID too. So Nick's been quiet. Now, is, is that a fact that he caught COVID? Is it, did 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 is he was he in Sydney and isolated? Is that what they're saying? What's he was in story? Melbourne. Sorry, in, I saw Sorry. him in Melbourne. I saw him in the morning walking down the street. I think the next day he said he had COVID. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't, I didn't check his PCR test, but if he says he's got COVID, he's got COVID to me anything else interesting that you've observed um since uh since you guys hit the ground since the summer down under has begun yeah it, it's really the, the the novak drama has engulfed everything else yeah absolutely yeah. everything yeah. there's you know the, the it's unfortunate like the messages that tennis australia are pushing out all the good things that happened before a tournament they've got all these you know a, a long list of press releases and good things it it just gets pushed to the side and until we know what's happening with Novak. What are they saying in the locker room about Craig Tiley right now? Not a lot, to be honest. Not a lot. Everybody Come on, man. Come on, man. Mate, Come on, man. <laughs> He's in trouble, right? Well, you know, on the surface he is. Yeah, on the surface he is. Um, you know, there's a lot of th- in the one thing you know in situations like this is there is an incredible amount happening behind the scenes. And you know that Craig Tiley is trying to get Novak to play the Australian Open. He's openly admitted that. Of course he is. He's the tournament director. In defense of Craig Tiley. Yes. He's the tournament director with heavy pressure to bring the world number one, the greatest player to the tournament, particularly coming off a year where they took a beating. 
Well, I don't know about that, actually. You know, I, I, I question that because um, he's the only unvaccinated player here. He's the only one. And we, we've known that for a while. And, and, and you know, the, the Victorian government, we're, we're going to be fine with it. The Australian public will be fine with it. Um, you know, this tournament doesn't, you know, is a failure or a success based on Novak. It's, it's, I, I disagree with that. You know, we don't have Roger, but we do have Rafa. But it feels like Craig was under pressure that he well, did. Well, I, I don't know whether that's even true either. I, I, I feel like Craig actually may have gone above and beyond to get Novak in. That's the feeling. You think Craig went rogue? You think he went rogue a little bit? No, I don't think he went rogue. I think that he applied every legal avenue possible. And the way that Novak was going to get in was was called COVID. But how in the world? It was that his only method to get to Australia was to catch COVID. So that hasn't been, that question hasn't been asked. It has, you know, it's like, how is that possible? Politics, baby. So I guess it's, Novak would. I guess Novak would say, "Is like, well, I'm not coming," and, and luckily I caught COVID at the exactly the right time, and here I am. It's a very tidy uh, timeline, isn't it, Craig? I don't. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. It's tidy. It feels tidy, though. He got it, it on does the sixteenth, and now he's there, and you know, it feels tidy. It feels tidy. So, question for you: What's your job when you're there with a player? Are you doing math? all the way through are you on the court how does your job function i'm i i I don't have a feel to be honest i I plead Um, ignorance no no problem so i I just want to back up a little bit to the pre-season so when alexi he played davis cup for australia in turin um and then we went to i was i was in turin as well working with the italian federation and then uh, when that ended, I also had my son with me. We had my 14-year-old son, so we had a great time. Before our listeners, Alexi Popper in Aussie uh, vis-a-vis Russian descent, I believe, talented young player who was playing out of Muradoglu a few years ago, at least. I don't know if he's still at Muradoglu. He's a blue chipper that people have a lot of high hopes for. Uh, sorry, continue. No, no problem. That's good, too figure that out um so we went to Marbella for 10 days then we went to Dubai for seven days to do pre-season you practice with Joker in Marbella no no we did not no we we were there we were gone before he arrived actually um but um you know I was on court a lot we we looked at his analytics from the 2021 season we saw where he did well we saw where he didn't I've got video of a lot of matches I started with him in the middle of the year at Cincinnati so we based our pre-season you know, off the math, um, you know, the, 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 the return, um, we need to get better in that area. So we did a lot of return work, a lot of video analysis, taping, taping um, the, the practice sessions and watching them in the evening. And, and now here in Australia, you know, my job is, um, you know, I'm on call with him every day, whether that's, you know, standing behind him as he plays practice points and being in his ear and talking to him and helping him through the errors and telling him what he's doing well. It's organizing the practice courts. It's making sure we've got balls. It's, it's, it's all of the things around. Hold on. So you're, you're his coach. I, I am Alexi's coach, yes. You're, you're coaching Popperin. Absolutely, yeah. I, in 2019, I was on the team. I was not the head coach. Now I am. So, Coach, uh, is this kid ready to play? Can he do some damage um, this year? 
Yeah, so um, <clears throat> six foot five, massive serve, massive forehand, um, backhand solid. We've got to get into the net more. We've got to get into the net. Um, you know, he has a very good presence up there. He's very quick coming forward. He's, he's extremely athletic around the court. Everything about these younger players, you know, when they're, when they're trying to make that breakthrough, and he's 61 in the world at the moment. So how do we get him to 50, 40, 30, 20, 10? That's, that's the goal. And it's, you know, it, you, you think that there's some magic formula and it's the pro tour and it's, you know, there's, the things don't apply to the club players. But, you know, at a base level, he's got to put the ball in the court more. That's a big deal. Um, when he loses matches, he's the one bleeding too many errors. So he's got to put the ball in the court. And that's not giving anything away about Alexi's game. That's everyone between 50 and 100. They have game, but there's ways that opponents can probe and extract too many errors. So it's, it's, a, um, it's a professionalism with everything that you're doing. Um, it's also mentally being stronger and not letting errors get you down. And it's also figuring out a way when you are under the pump in a point to get the ball back in play. When you're on offense, everybody's fine. When you're in neutral, <clears throat> can you find the way to offense? But especially when you're in defense, can you hang on and find your way back to neutral? And by the way, nobody does that better than uh, Daniil, Rafito, and, uh, and your boy, Joker. Exactly. They're, they're, they're masters. They're absolute masters. Doesn't it all begin and end with movement? Isn't every, isn't it all ends up being how good of a mover are you? Because everyone can crack the ball when they don't have to move. Craig, you're not just a pretty face. You're, you're a very astute um, tennis aficionado. It, it's, you know, there, there's so many times on the court the last week, 10 days here in Australia, where Alexi will do something well on the court. He'll hit a great forehand. And I'll turn to him and say, listen, your forehand gets 10% of the credit for that. Your footwork, your preparation gets 90%. And the way that I cut it up is really easy. I have him stand on the court, any player, 10-year-old kid. And I say, reach, reach out with your racket and touch the ground as far away from your body as you can. Now, draw an imaginary circle all around yourself. So you just kind of reach down and it's, it's not that far. It's about a meter away. And I, I tell them everything that happens in that circle is more important than anything, everything that happens outside the circle. Inside the circle is the, is the small adjusting steps. It's the constant movement with the feet. It's the spacing steps to get the ball either away from you or you get to it. So you're not reaching. And those little steps define who you are as a player much more than I need to run four metres to the other side of the court. Everybody can run in a straight line, but can you keep the engine running and can you take enough of those adjusting steps to get in a position every single time? Do you get tired? Can you keep doing it? That's the key. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk what's about... What's our your- score, Craig? What's, what's the score in the first two sets? Everybody's a winner here, baby. <laughs> this okay. is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. My man, where does your tennis begin? Aubrey, Australia. Aubrey. 25 grass courts. Hang on a second. Where do you fly into? Uh, well, from here, Melbourne or Sydney. So Aubrey's a small country town, three hours north of Melbourne, 
five hours south of Sydney. It's on the New South Wales Victorian border. So you fly into Melbourne then, right? You fly into Melbourne. Huh? Yeah. You, well, it's, from the states, you probably fly Sydney and, and drop drop in, but you can do both. Three hour drive north, but it's the Murray Rivers there. That's that, that's a big deal. So the Murray River and and Mount Kosciuszko and the you know we have snow fields. We can my in my town I can see snow in, on the mountains in the distance. So it's a beautiful area where it's very hilly, um, lots of water. You know, Australia is a place where, you know, most of the, most of the continent doesn't have water, but, but we, we do. And because of that, right along the Murray River, there's grass courts everywhere. So my town had 25 grass courts right over the river in Wodonga. Um, has 30 grass courts. You know, Yarrawonga, Wangaratta, Karoa, all these little, smaller little towns. There's probably 200 grass courts within a hundred kilometer radius of my town. And what about kangaroos and koalas? And Mate, on the, they're on the streets. You got, you got to dodge them. They, they, they're on your house. They're every. Are you serious? <laughs> no, I'm not serious, okay. but they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Kangaroos, every, you know, you, you get up, you drive, you know, even around town, my sister's house, my sister lives, you know, just a little bit, um, you know, a couple hundred meters away from, the the edge of the housing development and, and right there there's kangaroos in there you, you can see every day so what's the most interesting thing about this spot is is there a famous person from there is well there... margaret court margaret court's the most famous um you know growing up there that's where she, her tennis is from margaret court is from where you're from exactly same club same club and is is, is you know uh aside from her politics and such um yeah is she a is she a very famous person there is it- extremely famous person we've named the the tennis center after her the, yeah. the the academy the tennis academy there is the margaret court tennis academy um you know she did some pretty amazing things in her day sure. um, on a tennis court and um you know, and is, is 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 the tennis you know i've been to, I've, I've been fortunate i traveled i've been to adelaide i've been to melbourne it's those are real tennis places yeah you see the club players, you see everyone serving and volleying and, and playing right. good tennis, so very, very vibrant tennis communities in those in those places. Would it be fair to say that you're from a, a place with a vibrant tennis community? And is it because of the Margaret Court influence? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Tennis, in a lot of ways, is a social glue in Australia. It, it, it very much is. You have... And what we have is this thing called pennant, and it's Saturday afternoon. Starts at one o'clock every Saturday. Say it again. Cause they call what? Pennant. Pennant. So you have these little club teams. You know, Australia is a, a country that wants to participate in sport. We want to participate. Yeah. Whereas other countries, maybe America is a little bit more. We want to watch the sport, but Australia's like that, that we, we want to participate. We want to get out there. So there's so many people actively participating in sport in Australian tennis is such a big deal in, in the summertime. You know, you, you, the, all the courts are just packed. Packed. Club, club tennis is a big club time tennis. thing. Yeah. Club, club tennis, tennis. Is, is massive out here. Club. So how did you get into playing tennis, man? Um, as a kid, I played Aussie rules football and I just, there was three right at the end of my street, three minute walk, three little clay courts in, in a, in a, there's an intersection, a triangle, triangular intersection. And they were in the middle um, of this intersection. It was called Forest Hill Tennis Club. And uh, I went down there and there was an elderly gentleman, probably in his 70s. I was 11. 
12 maybe, I think it was 11. And I went down there and um, I'm like, I'd like to play. And his name was George Schumack and George. You started at 11 years old. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a little bit of a late bloomer. I mean, um, yeah. 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 And, it, and so it, how it, did you get good? I know, I know a little about your career. So go on, you got kind of good, huh? Uh, kind of, not great. Not great. I mean, I played, I played here in, in Aubrey and, and greatly enjoyed it at the end of high school. I, you know, I, I, I took a job as a journalist. Um, I, there's a local newspaper called the border mail. So as soon as I finished high school, I, I, you know, I journalism and writing like in, in, in school math, I was terrible at math, terrible. Hey, I, I, I hated going to chemistry, hated going to physics, hated going to math, hated it. Like literally would rather do anything else, but I liked English. So I, I got a job for about a year and a half as a journalist and, and, but I still really wanted to play tennis. I mean, I'm, I was 18, 19. So I went to the States on a, on a tennis scholarship and then, um, and, and, and got a journalism degree. But you went to Baylor, so you had to be a pretty good player. I mean, you, you were like playing junior tournaments and. Well, I played, I played my freshman year at Oral Roberts University. Oh, wow. In Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, it was just a bit too much for me. The, the evangelical side ate me up. Um, then I went to a junior college in Southern California called Saddleback in Mission Viejo. Loved it. Had a great time. I was All-American in junior college. I was ranked two in the state. Um, really enjoyed that year. Then I went to Baylor um, my junior, senior year. And um, I played one, but we weren't great. And I, I wasn't that great. So, you know, I never really played pro. I went and played club tennis in, in Germany for a couple of summers. Enjoyed that, but but never had an aspiration that I wanted to be a professional player. Weren't good enough. I wasn't good enough. No, wasn't good enough. What happened next? What happened next? You became a tennis pro with Peter Burwash, correct? There we go. So I, I graduated Baylor in 1991 and I'm like, do I go journalism? Do I go tennis? And, um, you know, I'm in Waco, Texas, three hours South is Houston. And there's a company called Peter Burwash International that they staff, particularly resorts all around the world. But Peter was a very good player. For our listeners, Peter Burwash specializes in club management. So the four seasons in Mali or the, you know, the Ritz-Carlton in Key Biscayne will have a Peter Burwash run program. Sorry, continue. No, you're, you're exactly right. So that was that was extremely good for me because I learned a lot. I had to go through a month long training program. Um, it, Peter offered you know a lot of training for a young pro. I think definitely the best in the world at, um, at, at taking somebody and saying, okay, you know, we we want to train you to be a tennis professional, and uh, that was really good grounding for me. Teaching tennis. Teaching tennis. Yeah, yeah. Where'd you teach tennis? The Woodlands Executive Conference Center Resort and Country Club, Woodlands, Texas, just north of Houston. That's a famous place, the Woodlands. Yeah, it is. It is a really nice place. How did you get into this whole program, this whole brain games situation? 1995, I'm at our tournament in Albury. It's in January. It used to be the lead into the Australian Open because we're on grass. Back in the 60s and 70s, you went and played Albury. And then you went and played the Australian Open. So I, I'm there, I'm there um, in 95. First year I got back from um, after working with Peter Burwash International. I tell the, 
the the guy that's um, running the club, I said, you know, there's, there, we see that there's some girls entered that are professional players that are playing like the 25,000s in South Australia. There was three of them. And then they're going to come and play Aubrey and then go to the Australian Open. So I said, I'll, I'll be a hitting partner. I'll be a hitting partner. So I get a call. It's like, there's a girl who wants to hit. So I go down and start hitting with her. She doesn't know who I am. Um, and we start hitting. And then, I, you know, I, I, I tell her, it's like, hey, you know, she's hitting a two-handed backhand volley. And I'm like, why don't you hit a one-handed backhand volley? Just move the other hand up. It's way better. Get the grip over to Continental. Way better for grass. It's almost impossible to do it in, in one hour. I don't even know why I even told her to do it because it's so tough. She did it. She did it. It's like, oh, my God, it's so much better to hit with one hand. So the girl's name was Dali Randrian Teffy. She's 17. She's from Madagascar. Just off the radar. She's 250 in the world. So, and, she, and she'd only won one match in those three lead-up tournaments. So I hit with her again. I hit with her again. I help her on a serve. Um, and I tell her to go forward a lot. Go forward. She wasn't going forward on grass. So she wins. You know, she's seated like 10th or something in this event. She wins round after round. I keep working with her day after day. And she wins the tournament. She wins the tournament. Fun, fun stuff. So she has it, which is even crazy. She had a Swiss agent. Like, I had no idea who she was. She had no idea who I was. But she's a, she was a big thing. She was the number one junior in Africa. And, you know, so the agent goes, Craig, we're playing, we're one of the last inequalities at the Australian Open. We want you to come and be her coach. I'm like, listen, I don't know any girls there. I've, I've been, I haven't coached at a 10,000 event, let alone a Grand Slam. I don't have any experience at that. And they're like, Craig, you're coming. How much do you want? I'm like, well, I don't know. How, how does 500 for the week sound? Yeah. And they're like, great, let's go. So to cut a long story short, she's in qualies. She wins her first round easily, second round. I'm just scouting the opponents. I don't know the opponents. I don't know the girls. But I see the first round, the girls got a monstrous swing, backswing on a forehand, so we rush that. Um, you know, the second round, there's another problem somewhere. The third round, a lot of rain delays, and she got through. Then she's got to play, um, she's got to play Florencia Labatz in the first round, who's 30 in the world from Argentina, who's a lefty, well, with only a slice backhand. So here's the strategy. I, I said to Dale, you know, you're just coming off grass and coming forward. Hit, it, hit three balls to a backhand. One of them will be short. You can't go deep all the time with backhand, with backhand slice. So I go, as soon as you get the short ball, you approach to a backhand because you can't pass with slice. So she beats a three and five. The next round, she's got Patricia Tarabini, who is probably one of the greatest one-handed backhands in the history of women's tennis, who beat, just beat Nicole Pratt 0-0 in the previous round. Patricia Tarabini, an excellent Argentine player, uh, you know, one of... Um... Gabriella Sabatini's contemporaries. Sorry, continue. Exactly. exactly. So I, I said to Nicole, I was like, how did she beat you? Oh, no, do we have a chance? She's like, I probably, Nicole said, I probably hit too many balls to a backhand. She's got a phenomenal backhand. So here's the strategy. Hit every single ball to a forehand. Even if she's standing in the alley, hit it to a forehand until the only time you come into the backhand is, that, is if you have to make a slice or you hit a winner. So she beats her badly, I think, two and one. She's in the third round against Mary Pierce. I'm being interviewed by Sports Illustrated. You know, this is the next coming of tennis right here. So um, Mary, Mary ultimately wins three and three. Nobody got more than six games off Mary for the tournament. Mary wins it. Um, and it was the match that Nick Boletari talked about in his book where Mary comes out on court and turns and looks at Nick and puts her hands in the air because 
they've scouted the wrong player. So I spent most of the match, Nick's sitting behind me, you know, a row back and a row across. But Mary's looking for him for signals the entire match. And I'm spending most of the match leaning in the line of sight to block the line of sight between Mary and Nick to stop the signals going through for Nick telling her how to play. Um, Dally, you know, she had two break points to get back even at 5-3 in the first and actually we had 3-1 in the second. So my first ever tournament, I take a 17-year-old girl from Madagascar to the third round of the Aussie Open and, and everything was predicated on the opponent. The opponent is the number one player on the court. Figure out your opponent, figure out their strengths and weaknesses and plug your game into that. And that has served me well for my career. Where did the the analytics start becoming the thing? Well, in like around 2011 and 12, I think it was 2011, um, I get a call before the, before the um, US Open from the New York Times. And the New York Times said, you know, we're running a feature on day one of, of, the, of the US Open about the serve. We, we want to learn everything about the serve. That's our focus. And we understand that you've got um, data on the serve. And I'm like, absolutely. I got, I, I've already got, I've already started collecting, but, but nothing official. It, it's just, it's a sideshow. What, what happened that made you become so analytic oriented? Was it just a natural progression for you? No, it, it wasn't. It wasn't because I, I, you know, at my academy, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how it, it's like the bottom line. How do I help players win more? Let me just tell you, the reason I ask is because yeah. I watched that little feature that the Tennis Channel did on you, and you said, oh, well, you know, I saw this movie, and I'm like, there's no way that can be true. There must be a better there – must, there, there must be something else there that you didn't actually watch the film and it inspired right. you. Right, to- so you're, you're, good point. Good point. You're exactly right. So here's the spark. Um, it's around 2000 and when, – when was it? It was when I was still in Australia. So it was, it was around 2000. Let's say 2000. Um, I'm running the academy. I've got good players at the academy. I've got a few kids staying with me at the time. We go and have our our, um, academy session in the evening, come back and have dinner. And I've got a boy, Andrew Bonneberg, who will go on in a couple of years to to win the Australian National Grass Court Championships, the number one 14-year-old girl from Western Australia, and a couple other good players. So we come home from dinner. We come home from the course, we're having dinner. So the, one of the kids had, had taped the final of the Leg Mason Classic, which was Andre Agassi and Scott Draper. And he taped it because I guess Scott Draper being the Aussie. So I'm sitting back kind of in the kitchen having my dinner and you've got four kids sitting right in front of the TV having their dinner watching Agassi Draper, final of, of Washington. And so I'm, what, I'm listening to, I'm watching what's happening and I'm listening to how they react. And Draper starts hot. He had six winners in the first 10 points. Meanwhile, Scotty Draper was a great shot maker. He was a yeah. great player. But he could he, he was a flashy, flashy player. He's probably the flashiest Australian player since there ever was until Nick came around. Yeah, very flashy. I, I agree. Um, so it starts off, but when Agassi's playing Scott through the juice court, Agassi went five. And, this is early on in the first four games. Agassi goes five and one, where the flavor of the point was through the juice court, which is Andre's forehand to Scott's left-handed backhand. If the point, the flavor of the point was constructed through the ad court, Scott was six and zero, oh. and we get to two all. And and the kids, the, the conversation with the kids is they're so enamored 
with what Scott's doing. They're so enamored with the winners. They're so enamored with, with the all or nothing, you know, low percentage, but, but you know, high risk. And, and he's, he's pulling it off, but it's still too all. Um, and, and then Agassi goes on to win the match 6-2, 6-love. It gets to two all, and Scott doesn't win another game. So these kids are saying all the wrong things about what's actually happening in this match. So after, after dinner, I go back, I rewind it to the start, and I go, okay, where do you think this serve's going? Why is it going there? Where's the ball going to come back? So I'm pausing this VHS tape, and we're having discussions about it. And is, you know, Andre is one of the greatest thinkers ever in our game, but after just a couple of several points of me explaining this to him, they could predict where Andre is going to hit every ball because, the, because of Scott's weaker backhand. So we finish at about one in the morning. And it's a monstrous breakthrough for everybody. These kids tell me they have learned more studying these first four games than they have in their entire tennis career combined. So that's when the light went off for me, is that using video and pausing video and showing strategy um, works. And not only that, showing the strategy of Andre Agassi is helping a 14-year-old girl because it's so simple. The strategy in our sport is so simple at the top level. It's not more complicated. It's simpler. And that's where things really took off. And you did a breakdown of Andre's tennis. You did a breakdown yeah. of Andre. Yeah, that's really the impetus for your entire Brain Games program, correct? It really is. I, I have these VHS tapes that I pop in and pop out and, and kind of create a makeshift presentation. Then I, I, I put it all on DVD. And it was Andre playing four games against Scott, which is, which is hammer Scott's backhand through the juice court. Then it was a few points from the 2000 round of 16 against Philippousis, where it's now hammer the backhand in the ad court, but also then run Mark really hard to the, to the juice court. And then a few points from the final in, in 2000 um, against Kofelnikov, where it's just running side to side to side to side to side, make it athletic. So what players could see is that Andre is playing three different opponents differently. It's not all about Andre. He controlled the center of the court, two steps left, two steps right, two steps left, two steps right. He always wanted to be controlling the center of the court and turning his opponents into jello, you know, into jello. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, That's a layer, but there's another layer that is, he's doing it by, you know, by pummeling a weaker side and also, you know, when to, when to use the strength and when to hide a strength, you know, when he's ahead in the score, he's hiding the strength. When he's behind in the score, he's using the strength. He's making it complicated and tough for the opponent to figure out, you know, what, what is, what is his real tactic here? And he was a master of that. How do you uh, link with Novak Djokovic? how do you link with team Djokovic? Is, is the man I was out at Indian Wells. I was in a meeting with play site um, and Gordon really? Ewing. Gordon put you in play with, uh, Gordon, with, with Gordon Novak. Yeah, so this is for probably- our listeners. Gordon Euling is a very inside player in tennis. He was one of the principals in PlaySight, which is a, a technology that charted matches. He also owns a series of clubs in in North New Jersey called CourtSense. He is. Uh, one of Novak's uh, inner circle confidants. Novak stays at Gordon's house when he plays the U.S. Open. 
exactly right. So I'm at this meeting in 2016 at Indian Wells, so March. Um, and PlaySite's learning about what I do. I'm learning about PlaySite does. Gordon is an investor in PlaySite. And the more I talk about the analytics and the patterns of play, um, Gordon just came out and said, have you ever talked to Novak about this? I'm like, no, he's like, I'll put you in touch. So uh, a month later, I was in Monte Carlo for the event and sat down with Murray and Vida and um, showed Murray and everything that I do. And um, we, we, we continued talks throughout the year and then it got to the end of the year and um, I sent through a proposal for the following year and they accepted it. And I first met Novak January 2017 at the Aussie Open and that's, that's when everything kicked off. And you guys had a very so-so year in 2017. He didn't win a major. Yeah, you're right. He's just coming off. You also got a fact that he, he, he just lost the, fight, the ATP finals in 2016 to Andy Murray to lose the number one world ranking. What was it like being on his team? It was great. It was awesome. Um, you know, working directly with Novak and with Marion, you know, we all had a role. My role was the strategy. My role was to make sure every single match he had a game plan. The players he'd never played before, he knew exactly what their strengths and weaknesses were. Um, players that got hot, why did they get hot? That's my job to figure it out. The other top players, especially, um, you know, Roger and Rafa, always be on top of their game, always studying those guys. But, yeah, 2017, um, you know, he had the niggle in the in the elbow the whole year and then played Burdich at um, Wimbledon and then pulled the pin. And so for the second half of the year, he was out. When did you conceptualize the serve plus one? Studying Rafa. For our yeah. listeners, serve plus one is a mantra that, all the pro coaches are talking to their players about essentially Craig maintains that all point, generally speaking, the majority of points end in the first four shots. Correct. Um, so I was, it, it, you know, it, it came from when I would go to the U S open, like 2015, 2016, um, Jamin Crabb is a, a, another Aussie coach. He's here in Sydney this week. Um, he's the Davis cup coach now. Um, along with Leighton. So um, I would stay up in, in, um, in Greenwich, Connecticut, at a place uh, where Jamin was, was living with uh, Charles Davidson. And Charles runs a hedge fund up there. Charles is a, is, a, is a tennis fanatic. He's a guy that you should have on here, actually, Craig. Right. I'm going to connect you guys. Um, Chuck, Chuck, you know, runs a monster hedge fund up there. You know, he's a big player in, in um, you know, in, in New York finance, but he's a tennis freak. And, you know, he, would, he has these libraries of DVDs. Like, Craig, you know, you want to watch Newcomb and Hode from, you know, 65. I've got the DVD. We'd sit down and wow. watch it. Let's watch Rios. Let's watch, you know, just a, an incredible tennis mind. And so I would have these evenings with Chuck and, you know, we'd talk a lot about Rafa. And I would study Rafa and I had dartfish and I had a tagging panel. The dartfish technology. Yeah, I would use a... the technology. And all of a sudden I, I put in this button. I'm like, I just want to track the first shot after the serve because it looks like Rafa's doing a forehand a lot. It looks like it. So all of a sudden, you know, to cut a long story short, 78% of the time that Rafa hits a, a, a ground stroke after the serve, it's a forehand, he's winning 64%. Both of those numbers are off the freaking charts as a win percentage and as a time. So serve plus one is, is a crucial aspect to your methodology, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. 
Um, I, again, studying Rafa, looking, seeing him hit so many forehands, I create a button in my Dartfish software to record was the first shot after the serve, a forehand or a backhand. I did the same for the return, return plus one forehand and backhand. And you uncover that, the, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's hidden in plain sight. The more that you can start, you know, the, the win percentage of starting with a first serve and a forehand versus a second serve and a backhand is astronomical between the two. Raf is the best. Roger does it all the time. And what's interesting is that from studying that and learning how important it was, I then infused that into Novak's game. How so? Um, I showed him the analytics of, of when the amount of forehand winners he hits versus backhand. So from 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, London to a finals, you've got Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, Ferrer, and Burdich. Those six guys played every year. Um, they averaged 75% forehand winners. Novak was at 72%. Um, it's like, you know, Novak, you've got the best backhand out of all of them, but you're only 28% backhand winners. And, and then I showed him that 60% of all forehand winners for right-handed players are struck with the player standing in the ad court. The ad court is where the forehand is the best. So you're talking about the inside out and the inside in. Exactly. Jim Courier camping down in that corner, ripping. That's exactly. where that that's where the winners come from. Yep. It, it's because of upgrade double freeze. Upgrade is you're upgrading your weapon. Forehands of the sword, the backhands the shield. The opponent's hitting to your shield, you say you put the shield down, I'm grabbing my sword. How important is the two-handed down the line backhand in women's tennis? Is that the most important shot in tennis to open the court? Um, I would say, you know, it, in both men's and women's tennis, it's very important um, because you hit more backhand winners. That area of the court that you hit to, that out wide area in, in the juice court, I call position A. So if you cut the juice court in half, the outer half is A, the inner half is B. The inner half of the ad court is C, the outer half of the ad court is D. Just as you look down the court, left to right, A, B, C, D, four equal areas. So position A is where most forehand winners are hit and most backhand winners are hit. So backhand down the line is a big deal. It's a big deal. We rally to C. We finished away. Um, and, but, but the runaround forehand is far more potent than even the backhand down the line. The, the forehand inside in is, is the number one from C to A. C to A is, is where it's all at, where our sport's at for men and women. But isn't that forehand inside in the most difficult shot in, in tennis? And the best players in the world force their opponents on big points. They sort of give up that shot. They say, like, if you can make the inside in, good on you, mate. Yeah. And well, I, there's the pattern I, I call the two-one, and the two-one is two to the ad, one to the juice. So you go deep to see, you go deep down the middle to the backhand to push the opponent back. Then they have to come back cross court on when hitting a hitting a neutral to defensive backhand. So then you push the, then you step in, you've gained ground now. You take one to two steps, and then you go wider to the backhand, push them back to the backhand, push them wider to the backhand. Now you've got an open hole. So the best players in the world have the two shots before, sometimes three shots, sometimes only one is needed. Um, but they have the, the assist. The assist shots make the, make the winner down the line um, less spectacular. The, 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 the younger players or the players further down the rankings have to hit the spectacular shot there because they don't have the assist. The crazy thing about this is I actually understand everything you're saying. It all makes sense. What was it like winning Grand Slams? Or you guys won four majors, and 
you know, obviously a boatload of other tournaments. Mm-hmm. What was it like being with some with the best player in the world, man? It's got to mm-hmm. be incredible. Yeah, it is. It really is. It's it's the pinnacle. You know, my goal um, always was to to be on a coach, to be the coach or on a coaching team to win Wimbledon. That's it. N- nothing else. Nothing else comes close. And um, I've been fortunate enough to help a player do that twice. And then also with Matteo, Matteo Berrettini to reach another final this year, help, helping the Italian Federation. So it, insanely rewarding. Um, it goes back to those early days of coaching Daly at the Australian Open and running my tennis academy and, you know, forging. Um, sure, you know, the culmination the, of yeah. culmination. But now did Novak ever just like say, man, just just stop it. I don't want to hear your crap today. I'm not. I'm not listening to you. Did you ever not say that? Once. Or did you ever... Not, so, once. not once. Not once. Not once. I have nothing but praise mm-hmm. for Novak in the way that we handled um, everything on the court, the pre-match preparation, the post-match review, um, his interaction with me, being on the court, helping him with his strokes. Nothing but praise. He never said. He said, "Hey, he said uh, bad game plan today, coach. Bad game not- plan." One time in three years. Now, what happened that you broke up? Uh, Goran. Goran is. Uh, Goran came on a team, and um, Goran is not a believer in analytics. He's not a believer in the other side of the court. And um, when Goran and uh, Marion Vida got together, it, you know, it, I respect that. It's their team. It's their team. And um, you know, Marion and I did everything well. Marion. You know, the things that I do were not a strength of Marion's game. So Marion was super happy for me to do it. You know, we would sit with Novak and Marion and I, and he's like, Craig, you lead the discussion. And Marion did a great job of it. said, you know, organized how we do this. He says, Craig, I think it's best if you present the, the video and the patterns, present it to Novak, and then let's be quiet. Let's let Novak think about it. Then let's Novak comment on it. Then essentially Marion would add to that. And then we'd put that little piece together and then we'd move on. But Goran's wow. just, he's, he's not a coach like that. And, um, you know, there's, listen, there's no hard feelings from my standpoint. It's his show and um, he wants to do it. And listen, they've had success. Wow, so, Goran, the Yoko Ono of Team Djokovic. Who knew this? This is big yeah. news here. The Yogi broke up the team. He broke up the team. But you guys still, he still won a lot of tennis, though. Yeah, he did. He did. And listen, I have nothing but praise for Goran. But the writing was on the wall. I remember at the US Open, we're sitting, um, scouting a player. I forget which player it was. And I'm sitting with Marion. I'm showing the game plan. And I could tell Goran's kind of like not really into it. So I, I try to engage him. I'm like, Goran, is there anything that you want to see? You know, I've got everything here. And he goes, Craig, just show me three points. Show me any three points you want, and I'll tell you how to beat the guy. And I'm like, he's not really into, he's not really into this. That's tough when you can't do your work. You got to be gone. Sometimes you sometimes sometimes well, you can't be but, everything to everybody. <laughs> but, but but I tell you, it's opened up other doors and other avenues and other players. And no, of course. like the work I do now with the Italian Federation is unbelievably satisfying. You know, when I do my research, getting ready for this interview, I've been told that you know the feder that your work with the federation has in part really been helpful with regards to the great success we're seeing from all the Italian players, even on the women's side with Camilla Giorgi playing well at times and Jasmine Paolini. But I mean, between all these Italian players right now, it's totally incredible. 
Yeah, they're doing a great job. Michelangelo Delladera is the Pied Piper of Italian tennis. He's the one that's put all this together. He's the head of high performance. What a name, Michelangelo Delladera? Michelangelo Delladera is Michael, the name. Michelangelo Delladera. That's a great yeah. name. Yeah, he's he's put all this together. He's put he's put the jigsaw together. What's your contract like with them? I go to Italy twice a year. I go during the Rome tournament, and then I go for the end of the year. So I was in Italy for three weeks. I did the, the next gen, the ATP finals and Davis Cup. So I helped all the Italians. During the Olympics, I helped all the men and all the women. Um, I helped with the Fed Cup. I helped with the Davis Cup. When When people go to the Brain Game website... What, what do they get there? What's, what's that all about? I have, I started that in 2014. So sorry, that's when my uh, sorry. Business... When someone goes to braingametennis.com, yes. what's over there? 11 courses, 11 strategy courses. Um, I started in 2014. The, the first was a simple one, 25 golden rules of single strategy. Um, there is, there's singles courses. There is doubles courses. There is mental, emotional courses. And there's even someone just attacking. You know, short ball hunter is all about everything about the front of the court. So that's the centerpiece of my business. People want to take pieces of your knowledge. They go there and they can buy these programs. Absolutely. How cool. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. I say it. And it, you say what comes in your mind. We go fast. We don't. We don't sit down on anything too long. Let's do it. Best moment in tennis. Um, Dustin Brown beating Rafael Nadal at Wimbledon Center Court. I was there and helped the game plan. What happened in that game plan that helped you uh, win that match? It's an incredible win, by the way. <laughs> um, it, it, listen, Dustin had the perfect game, but refining it and attacking Rafa's forehand out wide instead of trying to go to the backhand first. Your most difficult moment in tennis? Um, I would say breaking, you know, running an academy at a club and, and having that break up and having, you know, four or five years of building a business disintegrate. Um, that, that was tough. Your favorite player growing up? John Patrick McEnroe. Your favorite player now? It's got to be for Ale- Byron, right? <laughs> Today it's Alexi Poplin. <laughs> Uh, what about all the women? Is there is there a, is there a female that you uh, love to watch play tennis? Mm, no one, no no one in particular. I mean, um, Ash Barty. I'll go Ash Barty. Yeah. What a great player. Yeah. Your uh, favorite court can be any court in the world. Center Court at Wimbledon. I go there at nine o'clock every morning and have coffee with the head groundsman Neil Stubbley, um, and it used to be Grant Canton who was there as well. That, that that nine o'clock coffee is the highlight of my year. Yeah. Biggest pet peeve in pro tennis. That statistics don't tell the right story. And the unforced error is, is the worst statistic of all. Why? Um, you have no control of it. And it's extremely subjective. And most of the time they get it wrong. Um, just having winners and errors is way better. It tells a way better story. Do you believe in college tennis? 100%. Were your biggest pet peeve in college tennis? The let. I, I don't. I don't think we should be playing lets. Is cheating in college tennis an out of control problem? Well, I, I, I see. Uh, I, I don't know if it's out of control, but you know, you've got umpires out there now. I, I'd say put stop playing the let, and and enforce more. You know, 
just that, let the umpire take control of, of the court more. Pet peeve in coaching. Uh, what are coaches doing that really uh, really get your goat? Um, pet peeve in coaching. I, I would say the pet peeve is that, you know, we, we still haven't figured out that, you know, every coach coaches during a match. Everyone does. And we still haven't figured out a way to legitimize um, th- that and, and say, okay, you know, we can't run from it anymore. I, I was always a big believer that we, we just want the two players to go out there and battle it out themselves. But the coaches are coaching every time. So let's stop pretending that they are and, and make it legit. Group instruction versus private instruction. Private instruction is way more critical to, to create the foundation elements of technique. That's what one-on-one is. One-on-one, te- one-on-one coaching is unbelievably important. I love group instruction, though. I feel like it's more affordable. You, you make friends. You, you can kind of gauge your talent with other kids. I completely agree. But what's happening is that these young kids are going into these group instruction and with, with bad technique, bad volley technique, especially bad serve technique. It takes a long time to nail down good serve technique, and it's only going to happen one-on-one. And once you, once you establish good technique, go and do all the group stuff you want. Only then, you know, stop hitting, stop hitting a ball with a bad habit, with, with a broken technique. Prediction for this Novak situation. It looks like he's out of the country this afternoon. Holy shit. What a wild story. The Wild West down under. Oh, my God. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you could be the king of tennis for a moment without any aggravation and you could make a change in the sport, what would it be? I would get the head of Australian Open, French Open, Wimbledon, US Open, I would get the head of the ATP and the WTA and the head of ITF. We all get into one room and um, we lock the door. We lock the door and no one leaves. No one leaves until our sport has one governing body and we have one commissioner. Figure it out. Uh, hey, man, I did not know a lot about you and I enjoyed every second of this. Me too. Listen, brother, good luck down under. Good luck with your player. I met your player a few years ago at uh, Mortaglu's, and I liked him. He's a good boy. Um, can you guys do some damage down there or what? Boy, I hope so. We're, we're climbing again. Um, yeah, you know, I've coached him at two Grand Slams. It was third round each time. Um, I, I, think, I think we're heading in a good direction. So let's see the draw this afternoon and see, see where we can, how far we can go. My man, Craig O'Shaughnessy, you are released. Thank you, Craig. Huge thank you to Craig O'Shaughnessy, and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code, SHAP30, in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. Max Lowe edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.